you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Hi, and welcome. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong. I'm Rich. And I'm Henry. Hello, Rich. How are you? I am mostly good. We've just been chatting off air, and I'm, I'm a little tired today, but good, ready to go. I've got coffee. But I am a little bit sad as well, because... A man who I really, really like as a comedian passed away last week. Sean Locke, what a legend. Gone far too soon. Yeah, I, I didn't think you'd bring this up. But yeah, I was quite saddened as well by that. He, he's a bit of a special guy, I think, in quite a few people's lives. Is When he talks, the rest of the world seems to go away a little bit. And uh, it's a bit of a shame that he's gone, gone so early. What struck me about all of the celebrities posting on Twitter, people posting on Facebook, friends talking about it, is no one has a bad word to say about him. And everyone enjoyed, maybe not all of his humour, but a lot of his humour. He just seemed to have that appeal to everyone. Yeah, there were there were quite a few comments saying that he was brilliant when he was on stage, but when he was in, in real life, he was even more funny. And you, you can kind of get that. You kind of get that if you were in a pub with him and something kicked off, you know he'd have something funny to say or he'd chip in. So yeah, I, I don't know. He's very, um, it's quite a, quite a hole, an unexpected hole in people's lives, I think. Yeah, I read, I can't remember exactly who it was. Someone that I follow, one of the other comedians that I follow on Twitter made a comment saying when he was doing the Edinburgh Fringe, he talked to him about it because he Sean Locke had been doing it a lot longer. And he was like, how do you get through the fringe? He was like, I just don't read the reviews. I don't read the reviews. I don't pay any attention to the press because either you'll get great reviews, but you'll still find something that someone says somewhere that will annoy Mm. you, or you'll get bad reviews and then you'll feel really bad about the show that you've put together. And if you read other people's reviews, you'll read someone who you think should be getting good reviews and they're not, or someone that you think is shit and they're getting great reviews. And so it just makes you miserable. It makes you be angry at other humans and that's not a good thing. And I was like, that's a real Sean Locke way of looking at things. Yeah. In a parallel, I was reading the paper a couple of days ago and I read an interview with Dita Von and she said, even if you're the most wonderful, luscious peach in the world, some people out there still don't like peaches. Right. So you're going to have to accept that some people just aren't <laughs> going to like you. Yeah. And it was quite a cool way of putting it. And um, and yeah, I guess life kind of is a little bit dimmer with, without him around. Absolutely. And one of the things that I love about this is that just everyone seems to love him, which is great. So sad times, but we should talk about some music because this is not the Sean Locke Memorial podcast. No, no, <laughs> no, no it's, it's not. And it's your pick. Who have you it gotten is. for? I have gone for Mew, who were around in the late 90s, early thousands was when I came across them. You know Mew as well, of course, but I think a lot of our listeners might not because I feel like they're a a very underrated band in this country. Yeah, they are Danish, aren't they? And I bumped into them uh, probably about a similar time to you. But I think you're right. They haven't really had commercial success in in the uk i think mainland europe they've probably done okay but well describe their style and that might explain to people why they haven't been kind of mainstream uh yeah you've you've gone straight in with the hard question there yeah so i've really struggled a bit with how to describe them and who to compare them with because it's hard to compare them to anyone else they've been called 
indie or prog rock and their earlier work has some shoegazy underpinnings to it but it's too poppy in terms of the melody to really be true shoegaze but they're too quirky and off the wall to be a straight-up stadium rock band like Coldplay there's too many unconventional polyrhythms and weird stuff and key shifts and things that don't quite appeal to some of the more mainstream fans yeah they're not easily easy listening in the sense that if you put them on a on a kind of Sunday afternoon radio show they will be quite jarring I think in some of their songs yeah but again I think there's enough in their sound they describe themselves as stadium indie and so they do try and make this massive huge soundscape for their sound but yeah you're right I do think there's there's stuff in there that would be a bit jarring and unexpected particularly in the earlier albums yeah it's quite kind of lavish as well their sound there's quite mm-hmm. a it's kind of almost fairy tale like in a in a few of their songs and it's uh it's a little bit special it, it, there is a lot of sound on their albums it, yeah. it's their productions quality's high and, and well we'll go on to it but the live shows similarly kind of bombastic i guess and um yeah they do sit in their own little box don't they well you say fairy tale ish and i think that's a really good shout actually because i was trying to work out what i thought that side of them was and you're right it is it is very almost fantastical storytelling audio in a way and i think that's partly down to Jonas Bier's vocals because he's quite ethereal slightly higher pitched than you'd expect that that's where his voice is I don't find it jarring, but it's certainly unusual compared to your average rock band lead singer. So he does all the lead vocals. Johan Verlet plays bass and Silas Utger Greyer Jorgensen, I believe I've got that right, is drums. <laughs> yeah. And they also had a guitarist called Bo Madsen in their lineup until 2015 mm-hmm. when he left the band. And I think it's a hiatus more than a permanent leave because... Jonas Wurlitt left the band in 2016 before the birth of his first child and then came back in 2013. Mm. And Björ has been quite philosophical and understanding about the comings and goings. So he said, being in a band takes a lot of effort. You spend a great deal of time together and sometimes people need breaks. We've had people leave the band and return. I think that's okay. It has to feel right and honest or the music will suffer from it, which is really interesting. It's not like they've had fallings out. It's just that's been the right thing for that person and they've been cool with it which is cool yeah (laughs) yeah nice how did you how did you find out about them was it just on the radio yes i think it was probably was on the radio it would have been xfm if i'd been back home but we're at university at the time so in bristol you and i probably spent quite a lot of time just randomly dredging for interesting new bands and so it could have been could have been for the radio or just randomly found on one of the many music services that we were using at the mm, time. True. I don't know which track it was that actually pulled me into this album because there's a lot of really great stuff on this album. But I remember being very excited about finding them. And I've got a sneaking suspicion that I dragged you along to see them at Glastonbury when we were there in 2003. And I don't know whether you'd already heard of them at that point or whether that was your first introduction. Mm, no, I back then, I considered myself pretty clued up on bands. And so I knew everyone that was on the main stages and 
most of the, the the new bands and it was the new bands tent that they were playing in i think correct yes and you said let's go and see Mew, and i was like well there's so and so on the other stage let's see them instead and you said no 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 we should we should check these guys out and um brilliant decision absolutely brilliant decision and they they picked up a fairly kind of subdued well not subdued but a, a quiet tent um and they really rocked the place i think they were maybe the second or third band on that day that's right yeah i don't think they were very late in the day they were really really not well known at all at that point and when you're talking about the new band tent which is now the john peel stage that's probably the fourth or fifth stage in terms of size at glastonbury so it's way down the bill yeah yeah and it was down the bill and it was early afternoon and Mm -hmm. the combination of that sleepy afternoon somerset feel and then a band like this blasting out some pretty epic stadium-sized hits was just fantastic a wonderful way to see it we will go on to live stuff later but yeah that's how that's how i was introduced nice well you're welcome (laughs) yeah so we should talk a little bit about the band themselves and their kind of views on the music that they make Mm -hmm. so they came together in 1994 at school as four friends who just learned to play from scratch and had no idea in the beginning what chords they were playing right so they're very much one of those garage bands getting going as teenagers who just sort of dicked around to try and work out what the hell was going on yeah and that seems to be the way a lot of really inventive bands get together because you can kind of go off on your own tangent and there's no one to stop you Woolett has said we always try to provide the alternative to the mainstream, if you will. We're not trying to compete with Taylor Swift or Kanye West. It's always been about providing the alternative, and those records are definitely great alternative records. I think if a band was to release and the Glass Kites today, it would probably be loved as much as it was back then. I think we all liked music that was slightly less of the centre, and we were fascinated by bands who did things differently. We naturally just gravitated towards bands who tried to challenge the norm because that seemed to be what was most interesting for us as musicians and artists and Bure had said we started out listening to 80s pop what my parents were listening to Kate Bush Eurythmics but we were amazed by the grunge wave as well and that opened up to other bands we went to see My Bloody Valentine and they completely blew us away they were a gateway drug and you can hear that in the sound the shoegaze underpinnings from bands like My Bloody Valentine and the other bands that were around them at that time absolutely are there in the music for a lot of these albums it's almost like there's a shoegaze foundation to their music right that's what it's built on there's a kind of foundation of just this this noise and on top of that then they've got this yeah this this slightly more fantastic sound and i guess it's madsen's guitar which is kind of more spiky in places and he takes shoegaze and actually kind of wakes you up rather than having you drift <laughs> along and kind of sit in your your slumber well, they brought in shoegaze pioneer Damon Tunchen, who's from a band called The Swirlies, who I don't really know very well, but they're sort of one of those bands that other bigger bands yeah. say are an influence, and they just okay, pop cool. up time and time again. And there's a great quote from Bjer about him getting involved of, he produced the very first album we released. Swirlies played in Denmark in 1994 and we went to see them and we loved their sound. We approached Andy Burnick after the show and we got his contact and we sent them a demo. Damon graciously said, you sent me a dud. It now has the Frank Sinatra Christmas album on it. You've got to love that dry Scandinavian wit. (laughs) That's brutal, but brilliant. Yeah. 
But I love the fact that, I mean, he's American, but obviously they're like, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Which is awesome. I love that self-deprecating thing that they do over there. Yeah, it's uh, it's a trait, isn't it, of the, uh, of the Danes and yeah. Dutch as well. And they've said, with so much going on in the music, the sound has to have a certain clarity for the listener to be able to hear everything that happens. We started really achieving that from Frengers onwards because they'd released EPs and singles and things before that. And I think you really can hear that really starting to come together in this album yeah they're distinctive enough that you could just listen to them without any vocals and you'd probably know pretty quickly that it was a a mu track that was being played yeah absolutely i mean straight from the start of the album which we should dive into and talk about yeah um so in terms of openers is that where you want to start it's- oh 100 <laughs> yeah, percent. can't ignore so. am i a song with the title am i right no no <laughs> it's, just, it's always entertained me and part of the frustration with researching this podcast episode was that i wanted to know a lot more about the specifics of the music mm-hmm. and what they were trying to do and the meanings behind them but there's just not very much online i think they were in that weird gap where the internet didn't really have all of the stuff that it has now Mm. in terms of online publications doing their thing and forums and people discussing all that stuff. So it's kind of hard to get anything more than hearsay on a lot of these things. Yeah, I quite like that in a way. It is kind of a little bit more mystical. It's crap for a podcast because it means (laughs) that you can't explain to everyone what was going on. But it does mean that it, yeah, there is that little hazy historical past which you can't quite dig into i suspect if my danish was a lot better that i might be able to find out a lot more on them because they are actually pretty big in denmark i don't know that they're the danish cold play quite at that level but they're certainly much much more mainstream than they are in the uk doesn't surprise me i mean yeah they've got a cult following in in the uk which again we'll go on to with 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 the live part but yeah i can totally understand that they're, they're big over there yeah so this track basically is in a good way a bit all over the place so in the way that we talked about maximo park and block party shifting gears within a track yeah this definitely does that so you've got the start where you've got all these gorgeous synths and crunching guitars and there's an onslaught of percussion but then it ducks and weaves its way through various different moods and styles it never feels disjointed but it definitely takes you on a journey there are time signature switches, so I think it's in a 4-4 to start with, and then it switches to a 3-3, which is more of your classic waltzy style and sound, and then moves back again. It's really smart. For a band where this is basically their debut album, there's so much going on, and that's part of the joy of their music. There's even that sparkly, spooky outro of diamond ring, diamond ring, but you can't find it cold as the night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Straight into fairy tale land. Right. I had a, a bit of a chat with Pat Jackson, who's been on the podcast a few times uh, and is a general friend of the pod. He made a comparison with Cranberry's Promises, which is really interesting, but quite a good oh, shout. That is a great shout. Because it's got the same stabby guitars at yeah. the start of it. Oh, that's, a, that's a fantastic show. I would not have put the two together, but you're right. Me neither. It does really work. Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. i got to talk about the first few tracks on here. So 156, another brilliant track. More fairy tale stuff. The whooshy, windy synths at the start of this bring to mind a winter night. It's another track that shapeshifts away from what you're expecting. So it really gets going around a minute and 20 with those driving guitars before shifting back to that wintry landscape. It's incredible that they can create such imagery with the music. 
Yeah, the, when it all goes kind of quiet and he says, you are just like an avalanche and then the song comes back into it again. It's 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 brilliant. I, I love 156. It's one of my favourite songs of those. Oh, so good, isn't it? And then we go straight into Snowbergade from there. And my, my opening note for this is just guitars, exclamation mark. I love the scratchy muted intro before it all comes to life right at the very start. Yeah, and that's where the guitars are a bit more... Um, they don't work kind of with the music almost. It's almost like they're they're challenging the the nice shoegazy status quo. Yeah. I try to cut through all of that with a bit of a knife. Right. But this to me is one of the most shoegazy in terms of classic shoegaze approach. And that is because around 45 seconds, there's that thunderous bass that just kicks in. And that is absolutely badass. If you put that on a decent pair of speakers and turn them up, it's just this wall of bass that hits you. It's a fast played bass and it just hammers home and it's brilliant. It's got this kind of tempo to it, which a lot of bass players wouldn't play every note. They'd, they'd, they'd miss one and, and just have a, a slower background tempo. Yeah. But this bass just like, yeah, just drums into your head. It's fantastic. It's almost like, it's almost like percussion. It just, just hits you. It's that classic shoegazy way of using bass to create almost a physical yeah. bass feel that you almost get it coming in through your chest rather than through your ears yeah brilliant brilliant i love that so much and then when they pull back from it it's a really wonderful release yeah no i'm a i'm a big fan it's just, it's a great way to open an album and it's um definitely their strongest album opening yeah those three songs i think so we need to skip some because otherwise this is going to become a track by track and the middle of this album is excellent it just isn't quite at the same level as the start and the end yeah so i'm going to jump to she came home for christmas Ugh. that's the kind of the first song that stuck into my head when i saw them for the first really? time yeah i just remember up until that point i was really impressed and then this one must have been the chorus or something when your ears pick up on something and you get hooked in the thing that I was just trying to do all the time was to remember the lyrics so that I could find out what song it was so that I could go and hear it again because I loved it. Right. And I was sitting there just getting really pumped because it's like, remember the vocals. And I think I think I've mentioned this once before when we were talking about Willie Nelson. He did a, a similar song in a similar way where I got hooked in massively when we were at the Radiohead gig. And he was singing this, and I was like, must remember this. This is brilliant. And I never have. So um, oh, no. if, anyone's, if anyone's got Willie Nelson's set list from the, what, 2005 Radiohead gig at Hammersmith, can someone send it to me? I need to, it, it might even be on set list, um, that website. It's 06 or 07. It's got to be, because that's when I was living in Ealing. Actually, yeah, 07. Anyway, yeah. around that time. And uh, yeah, if someone can dig that out for me, that'd be great, because I need to find that song. Yeah. Have you listened to the lyrics to this very much? Because it gets pretty dark. Yeah. There are some interpretations around this being about abuse, but I tried to dig into it and find anything definitive from the band, but there isn't, so I don't want to say something that's not true, but it sounds pretty dark to me. Yeah, I mean, even at face value, some of the lyrics are pretty... Um, yeah. Yeah. Either way, it's an emotionally powerful song and the chorus is just a superb slice of pop. Yes, big fan, a huge fan actually. Um, and it's another one that made it onto their... So they've got a an album called Eggs Are Funny, which is their compilation and they, they think this is their greatest hits, I guess. Yeah. Um, this is another one that ends up on there, along with quite a few of the ones that we just mentioned. I can absolutely imagine a huge stadium singing along to this when I listen to it. Definitely. 
particularly that chorus of it's not me it can't be did you just imagine like a crowd belting that out back to them yeah every time i hear them play it i get very excited great song yeah and that's followed by probably my favorite song of theirs which is she spider okay how good is the quiet loud opening of this track oh yeah no that's that that is good it's um quite loud is the exact way to describe it isn't it (laughs) yeah and the musicality in this is staggeringly good the wall of sound that kicks in at one minute 20 is amazing and the beat pause just just in that is superb it's so well judged yeah often at the back end of an album like this bands will start slowing down a little bit and this one's just full and you could open the album with this you could open a, a, a set with this easily and just blow everyone away oh yeah I love the shift to a major key for the chorus because it opens with this edgy minor key, but that switch to the major key suddenly brings everything into this sharp, joyous focus, and I love that so much. This is where I just hate copyright law because it's the kind of thing where if you could just play little clips of this during our podcast, Mm -hmm. you could just get across how how clever the song is and how much it changes you probably need about five clips and then you get sued i guess but you know yeah them's the way of the podcast but yeah it is a lovely song and it, and it is very intricate i have a physical emotional response to this song literally every time i hear it it makes me want to jump around whatever <laughs> room i'm in while bawling my eyes out with joy yeah it, it's got energy by the bucket load hasn't it oh so good and then they close the album out with comforting sounds, which is also wonderful. Yeah, and I'm I'm pretty sure at least every gig I've been to, they close out every gig with comforting sounds. I've not seen one where they haven't, so I think it's their standards. This is the end of our set. We'll play this. And it's a great way to close an album. It's an incredible song. And the build in this is wonderful. It's such a simple opening and the pace of the build, the fact that it's quite slow and winding, but it builds to such a huge crescendo is is fantastic. It's nearly nine minutes long and it earns every single second of that. Yeah, and I guess that's why they close with it because you just know you, you could just carry on. You could play that for 15 minutes and everyone would love it. Just keep going, just carry <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, because it, it has that thing around four minutes where it, it all just kicks off and it just takes off and soars and I love that so much. Yeah, no, it's... a. Uh, it's a really, really strong album. It holds together brilliantly. And that's the thing. It's fantastic as a whole album, and I really struggled to pick out tracks. I went through the track listing, listening to it, and wrote down the titles of the songs that I really wanted to touch on, and I think there were maybe two or three that I hadn't put on the first <laughs> list of this. So to go back through and cut a load more out, yep. otherwise this would have just been like an hour-long podcast of me gushing uncontrollably about how great you are yeah and for a debut album as well oh yeah absolutely it blew me away that they were this good this early on in their careers so um the obvious next question is follow-up albums have you listened Mm. to them have you kept track of them since then yeah i've dipped in and out of their career so glass-handed kites just didn't grab me in the same way that frengas did and that's not to say it's not a good album i think i just had such high hopes off the back of frengas that i was expecting something quite similar and actually it's much darker it's harder to get into 
I suspect it's probably more rewarding. I had a bit of a listen to it before this, and I think I need to spend a lot more time with it. Circuitry of the Wolf is a brilliantly noisy way to open an album, but I can imagine it putting off mid-twenties me. Yeah, I love it because it's got The Zookeeper's Boy on, which is, well, I think it's their greatest song. There, okay. I've put it out there. It's my favourite <laughs> Mew song. It's absolutely brilliant and uh everyone that is a Mew fan will probably be nodding and maybe maybe there's a challenge with some of the songs you've mentioned previously but yeah I, I love this song hugely and I'm very glad that I, I'd buy the whole album just for that one song fair enough I do need to get more into that album it's one of the things that I'm going to go away and listen to some more Mew because having spent a bit more time with some of the stuff on the back catalogue in the last week I'm really annoyed with myself that I sort of just let them slide and let them slip away without following their career because they're a band that I should have bought every album, listened to it obsessively and and just followed them and gone to every gig that they've ever done. And I, and I haven't, and I don't really know why, because I was so obsessed with Frenger's when it first appeared that quite how they've passed me by for a lot of the rest of their career is, is beyond me because no more stories are told today. I'm sorry they washed away. No more stories. The world is grey. I'm tired. Let's wash away. While being a great album title is an album that I basically completely missed. Well, I I bought this album okay, and I bought it and didn't really listen to it much. And I'm, maybe I just didn't give it a chance, but I bought it and then I also had Frangers and, and Frangers is the one that I'd go back to. And No More Stories is just a little bit harder to get into. So I kind of, I took a step back from them as well on that one. Did you get Plus Minus, which is their next album? <sighs> I did actually. They're one of the few bands who I have just kept getting their albums. So I got Plus Minus, which I I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. But actually, for me, I think Visuals, which came out in 2017, is the uh, the high point of definitely their last 10 years of work. I think, think it's a brilliant album. Well, Visuals is where I really came back to listening to them again because of you and because you basically told me I absolutely had to listen to this album. It's the best thing they've done in years. And I was like, oh yeah, Mew, I remember them. I loved Frangers, but haven't really paid attention. And it's fantastic. It's a really great album. What are your tracks that people should listen to from this? Because you you are a bigger champion of this album than I am. In a Better Place was the single that came out, Mm. I think. I may be making that up, but that's the song that I know as the one that introduced me to the album. And that that was good. But I've got to call out Carry Me to Safety at the very end of the album. Yes. It's a bit like Comforting Sounds and She Came Home for Christmas. It's this this big epic track. You could fill mm-hmm. a stadium with it and play it and everyone would love it. it yeah, it, it's wonderful. And when they toured this, they have visuals in the background of these kaleidoscopic faces and they try and do a all-encompassing stage show, which is great. And it makes you kind of really get sucked into the album. Yeah, I'm hoping that they'll release something interesting and new in the next year or two so they do another tour off the back of that and i can go and see them again but i have to call out quickly from this album nothingness and no regrets and the wake of your life which are the two other tracks that really grabbed me from here yeah both both brilliant songs Mm -hmm. and um yeah they do have a really really strong back catalog i mean when they released a best of in 2010 and then they're still producing new music like this i think ash did a similar thing we talked about them before and they they released the best of halfway through the career and then produced about 20 other brilliant songs and you know (laughs) some songwriters can just do it yeah i think just the incredible chemistry that they have as a band and the the artistry with the music is a thing that lends itself to continuously 
producing new interesting stuff, particularly when you're only releasing albums every, what, four or five years, maybe? Yeah. yeah. The, their last album was 2017. We haven't heard anything from them recently. I've no idea whether they've got more stuff in the works at the moment. Yeah, and that's that's no bad thing. I'm Bands that feel the pressure, and it's always from the record label, to try and make more music, I'm always of the opinion that if they want two more years to make a, an album, just let them have it. Let them produce good work. Don't rush stuff. Um, so, yeah, the fact that they've they've not broken cover recently, if, if they're making new music, then brilliant. Bring it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. And I think they are a band who don't give two shits about record label pressure. They don't feel like a band who have felt the need to make commercially massive music as long as they can make enough to you know feed themselves and their families and make the music they want to make that's what makes them happy yeah so what about live then we kind of mentioned <laughs> we've mentioned glastonbury we've basically covered it haven't we <laughs> yeah i guess we i guess we have so have you seen them other than the glastonbury one uh, i have i saw them in london i think it must have been the tour around glass kites mm-hmm. And I think they were in a little bit of a live slump at that point. And that might have been the thing that contributed to me just not being overly excited about continuing to follow their career, which is a real pity because I remember, I mean, I remember vividly the build up to seeing them at Glastonbury 2003. I remember not bullying you into going, but being very strong that I was like, you can do what you want, but I'm going to see Mew because they're going to be amazing. Yeah. And going to see them. And I also remember actually, probably for the first time, that feeling of being very, very excited to see the band that you've picked to go and see, but being there with a friend whose musical taste you trust and admire, and being really nervous that they're just going to be like, this is shit. (laughs) So I was really nervous about wanting you to like them as much as I did. Yeah, because I then saw them again off the... 2017 tour and I went with a friend of mine uh, Nick and his now wife and that was completely the opposite we were both massive fans but we didn't know each other were big fans and so off the back of that in fact I've seen them twice more I'm sure I saw them at the roundhouse maybe with you are you sure you didn't come to that gig maybe maybe that was just me on my own oh Oh, no, I did. Yes, that's. I was trying to remember. I thought I'd seen them more, but I couldn't remember the situation. I think we saw them at the Roundhouse because then I posted it on social media that I'd been there. And then Nick said, I was at the gig too. I was down at the front or over there on the left. Yes, yes, I do remember So that. he knew I was a Mew fan. So then back in, back in 2017, that's where I saw them again. And I think the gig was, it was like a couple of weeks after the Bataclan tragedy and all gig venues had stopped. Oh wow! And there was this weird atmosphere in the um, we were in in the pub beforehand, and uh, we were in the Brewdog next to the Hammersmith Apollo, I guess. And the atmosphere was just kind of super weird, obviously. But the gig was amazing, and it kind of it was good enough that with the music and the visuals on stage, you kind of stepped away from that all those sad thoughts. So yeah. Um, yeah, I've I've really enjoyed seeing them live. Definitely one that I'd go and see again. What about um influences? Shoegaze, I think. Yeah. I never really got into the first round of things like My Bloody Valentine. This sort of was a bit of a ha, 
they talk about my bloody Valentine being a gateway band. They're my gateway band into this shoegaze noise, mm-hmm. if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And I, I love that. It's such a large part of what I love in music, that massive wall of sound. And we've talked about Blank Mass on this podcast. I think of that in the same way. It's You're getting pummeled with sound, but you've still got all this beauty that's swirling around in the noise. It's like a hurricane of art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get that. How about you? Um, there have not really been many other bands that have spawned off the side of you, kind of because they're on, in their own little special world. Right. And I never really got on with mainstream shoegaze music. So no, not really. I did see a funny shoegaze gig. I saw a band who was supporting Shearwater and okay. they were a shoegaze band. That's a weird combination. It was, so, but my my French friend Ronan, who I haven't spoken to in a very long time, he nudged me halfway through the set. He said, I've, I've never ever seen a shoegaze band with every member spending the whole gig looking at their shoes. They were literally <laughs> all looking at their shoes for the whole time. And um, yeah, that was a bit weird. Anyway, I, I digress. I went to see Slow Dive two, no, it'd be three or four years ago now when they played as part of Dot to Dot Festival in Bristol and they were the sort of the headline-ish act because Dot to Dot's a bit weird and all over the place and cool and I really like their setup but they mm. were the last main band on in the o2 academy and i went with terry and his then husband kevin who are both lovely humans and kev's a massive massive shoegaze fan and we stood up on the right hand side of the balcony and looked down onto the stage and they were very much the stare at their shoes shoegaze but they were incredible that was that was an unbelievably good live set and i would definitely recommend slow dive as a good entry point into shoegaze for people who aren't sure about shoegaze cool yeah so i guess if, if you were a little bit too over the top then that's where you should start yeah maybe slow dive for me are on the poppier edge of the shoegaze thing they have the like big massive wall of sound but their guitars are quite chimey they're almost a bit mm-hmm. on the edge of that u2 singing guitar sound yeah and so i'd recommend star roving and sugar for the pill as a couple of good songs to listen to from them that are not hardcore shoegaze if that makes sense Mm -hmm. cool i don't know them so i will be listening to cool excellent we should call it there because i think we've gone on long enough about mew although if you don't know who mew are go and listen to them because they are great yes do it do it great cool Good band. Nice one. Job done. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Catch you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.